Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Lauren Spendlove has worked in many fields over the last 30 years, including academics and corporate financial management. Currently, he and his wife design and manufacture consumer goods. A student of languages, his research interests center on linguistics and entomology. He's here today to talk about his article in The Interpreter entitled Understanding Nephi with the Help of Noah Webster. Welcome. Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you for coming in. I am curious what that means that you design and manufacture consumer goods, because that sounds really generic. It is very generic, but uh, <laughs> actually what we manufacture is fairly specific. Okay. We have a line of uh, solar-powered flashlights and lanterns. Oh. Okay. And we currently sell them in Walmart, and we've had them in Costco before and plan on getting back. Sell to other uh, outlets also. I think I may own one of yours. What's the brand? Well, um, we, my wife and I do all the design work and manufacturing, but okay. we allow others to brand the product as they wish. Oh, okay. One of our customers, uh, their brand is called Hybrid Light, and so hmm. it may be branded that way. L.L. Bean sells it, but it's branded L.L. Bean. Gotcha. So, so it's a private label. That, right. Hence the non-name attached to the, uh, the That's bio. That's right. Well, your article struck me kind of interesting, uh, interestingly in the sense that one of my, I'm going to go ahead and call it a pet peeve. One of my pet peeves, and I don't have many uh, when it comes to the church, is that we, we hear so many talks start out in sacrament meeting where people comes up and say, Webster's Dictionary gives the following definition of, and it's whatever their topic or title was, was given to them, their assigned subject matter. And they always appeal to Noah Webster. And so I thought, well, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because it seems a little like a cop-out. And then you print your article, Understanding Nephi with the help of Noah Webster, and I thought, I got to see what he means by this. <laughs> and and clearly and, and happily, I was grateful to find greater substance with your article. So let's get into it. Why don't you kind of introduce where your interest came from and the basic premise of your title and, and, and how Noah Webster even comes into play. Sure. Um, one of my goals for many years has been to learn how to read and write the Deseret Alphabet. Mm. And I don't state this in my article, but last year around Christmas, I decided to read a Christmas carol published in the Deseret Alphabet. I decided that's how I was going to learn it. So I did. I sat down with the book and started reading through it in the Deseret Alphabet. And I won't explain what that is for those who don't know. But uh, I thought I had learned it quite well. But I got to certain parts of the book that were just so difficult to understand that I even questioned whether or not I was reading it correctly. Right. And uh, so what I had to do, after I read it in the Deseret Alphabet, I went to an online version using a Latin alphabet, and just to make sure I had read it correctly, and I had, but I still didn't understand the passage. <laughs> and so then I started pulling out dictionaries, 
And fortunately, I've got a copy of Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which was published not too long before A Christmas Carol was published. So I pulled that out and went through some of those words, and I was able to decipher what was being said, uh, which was very different from what I thought was being said. I'm grateful I did that because had I read it in a Latin text or our current English as we would read it, I would have skipped over those parts I didn't quite get, and I wouldn't have really understood what was going Mm. on. And that started prompting me to, to think that the Book of Mormon also, you know, some of the words that, that I found in, in A Christmas Carol have dropped out of usage. Right. We just don't use them, like the word bedight. Yeah. And so I was, uh, or quartern. These are words I wasn't familiar with. And so I thought maybe I could find the same type of thing in the Book of Mormon, where um, words were used that actually had a very different connotation back in Joseph's time than they did today. So I set out to read the entire Book of Mormon with Webster's 1828 Dictionary, oh boy. word by word, <laughs> to see if I could discover words that had changed. And I naively thought that if I found 100 words whose definitions had changed over the nearly 200 years since its original publication, I'd be quite fortunate. Well, by the time I finished 1 Nephi chapter 1, I had found 16. And <laughs> I like, real oh, It's a good pace. Yeah, I realized that uh, I was going to far exceed the 100. In fact, I uh, before I finished 1 Nephi, the, the entire book of 1 Nephi, I had found more than 100, but I decided to keep, keep plowing through, and I ended up finding 164 words whose meanings or usage had changed somewhat, sometimes significantly, since the Book of Mormon was originally published. I ran out of steam to finish the whole Book of Mormon, <laughs> so I kind of left it at that. <laughs> well, I guess I don't blame you, because that sounds like an incredible amount of work. And so I'm curious, though, to jump back a little, who just has an 1828 dictionary lying around? Well, well I mean, what brought that around? Yeah, it's, well... It's huge, by the way. Yeah, actually, it's a facsimile copy of the 1828. I've always been interested in, in words and their meanings and uh, where they come from. Uh, I served a mission as a young man in Brazil mm. and was fairly naive of the English language until I started learning Portuguese and... Then I started understanding what a lot of English words meant. Yeah. And ever since then, I've had a fascination with the English language and the source of words, what we might call etymology. And um, so I purchased this dictionary several years ago so that I could do just that, go back and try to figure out what words meant at the time of Joseph and so I've had it on hand, but haven't done a whole lot with it. So this might be, seems like a kind of weird question, I suppose, but why 1828? I mean, why, why not a different year uh, prior to understanding that Joseph was being educated at a younger age? So why not a 19 or 1815? Uh, why not something younger where Joseph's mind would have been more formative? Why 1828? Well, that's a good question. Webster actually published two dictionaries. One was in the early 1800s, 
Uh, it was a, a very concise dictionary. Um, it wasn't his best effort. His next dictionary that he published was in 1828. Mm. There was nothing between that first one, and I think the first one was in like 1806, but I'm not okay. sure. Um, and so his first real dictionary of the American language was in 1828, and he put a lot of effort into this. Um, spent uh, spent 20 years after that first dictionary that he published to try to figure out exactly what words meant in the United States as opposed to um, uh, England. There were lots of dictionaries published in England that were available in the U.S., but they didn't quite accurately reflect how words were used here in the U.S. at that period of time. And so Webster published this dictionary uh, in upstate New York uh, just days, two days before Joseph started the translation with Martin Harris. Mm. So it... and. The location of the publication was just a hundred miles north of the location, the Joseph Smith Jr. farm, where the translation was started. So I believe that this dictionary accurately reflects word usage at the time of the translation of the Book of Mormon, as Joseph and Oliver and others probably would have understood these words. Do we have any record that they kept a copy of that dictionary nearby? We don't even know if Joseph ever saw the dictionary. Okay. We don't know. Okay. Uh, There's no recorded instance of Joseph citing a dictionary or that he even owned a dictionary. Uh, The key point is that this dictionary kind of locks in a, uh, a place in time what word usage was. Right. Uh, just, just to give you a real quick example, my wife and I served a mission in Africa, and about a year ago, we had one of our uh, return missionaries stop by our house. And as he was leaving, he said, um, he said, he looked at us and said, you two are sick. And we just kind (laughs) of stared at him. Thanks. Yeah, like, what in the world does that mean? And he said, oh, don't worry, that's a good thing. Oh, yeah. And, of course, I wasn't familiar with the use of the word sick in that sense. The point is, words change their use over time. Meanings change. Definitions change all the time. And... uh, Something like this dictionary gives us a snapshot of what words could have meant at the time that Joseph was doing the translation. Yeah. Now, let's get into your article a little bit further, because what you do in the rest of the article is that you show different examples of where this is the case, where there's a a modern understanding, a contemporary understanding to today and how that changes from what was given back in 1828. Right. So some of those are what I would call devotional type interpretations, and others are more apologetic uh, applications. So let's start off with some of the more maybe devotional type uh, instances, maybe even the ones surrounding Lehi's vision. Uh, I'll let you choose, but those are the kind of the ones I was thinking we'd start with. Okay. Any specific words that had popped out? I think in your article, there was the one that talked about uh, after they had eaten the fruit, is it laid out or? Ah, yeah. They fell down. Fell down. Yes. You know, there are four groups of people that are described in, the, uh, in Lehi's vision. 
And the only difference that you can really find between the third group and the fourth group, the two groups that actually reached the tree. Right. One group, it said that they partook of the fruit, and then later they were ashamed. Where the other group, it said they fell down and partook of the fruit. And that's a key here. Well, even the word partake is something you analyze, it too. It is. It is. And partake has a very different meaning today than it did back at that time. I'm going to put on my reading glasses <laughs> here. I'm getting just that old. If you look at the term to fall down, it had a very specific meaning. Um, Boy, I want a copy of that, by the way. You've got it all charted out and spreadsheeted. That's I, nice. I do. Excel is a wonderful thing. <laughs> so if you go back to Webster, is 1828, uh, and look at the term to fall down, the first definition under to fall down is to prostrate oneself in worship. Now, that's a fascinating definition. Um, if you look at uh, the Oxford definition for today, the, the Oxford American Dictionary, it says that the definition of fall down is to be shown to be inadequate or false, to fail. Hmm. Well, when this successful group of people fell down at the tree of life and partook of the fruit, they were hardly being false or failing. Instead, I defer to Webster on this. I believe that they actually prostrated themselves in worship. If you do a lot of study on the tree of life, you will see that it is a symbol for Jesus Christ. Right. And so that's the difference between the third group and the fourth group. The third group didn't really realize the significance of the tree. They were there partaking of the fruit, but didn't really understand what the tree was. The fourth group did, and they actually prostrated themselves in worship. So they didn't fall down because they were tired. Well, that, that is a possibility. That is one of the definitions of fall down, but it's not the primary definition according to Webster. Again, it's to prostrate oneself in worship, or it even continues to bend or bow as a suppliant. Now, we find evidence that to fall down in the Book of Mormon did mean to prostrate oneself in worship because later uh, we have the case of uh, Laman and Lemuel, and they actually, it says they fell down and were, Nephi said, they fell down and were about to worship me. So here we have a case where they're not falling down out of tiredness or anything. Right. Laman and Lemuel actually got down on the ground, probably prostrating themselves, and were just about to worship Nephi when he stopped them. So this is a case where fell down did mean to prostrate oneself in worship, and, and I would, uh, I believe that that's what it meant at the tree also. Why not? It'd be consistent with the author, right? Right, and that was Webster's definition at the time of Joseph, very different from what the word fall down means today. Right. It almost seems accidental sometimes, too, that you fell down the stairs. Right. Or, yeah. Exactly. So what about partake, then? Let's jump to that one okay. since it's connected. Yeah, partake is very much connected. You know, when we think of the word partake today, we, we, we associate that with the sacrament. And, uh, you know, when we partake of the sacrament, if you read in Oxford, which gives us today's definition— um, 
we read, um, to partake of means to eat or drink something. That's the definition simple. right out of Oxford. Yeah. Very simple. And so when you read in the vision of the tree of life, Nephi says, and it came to pass, or Lehi says, and it came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof. Well, according to Oxford, it means to eat or drink something. But according to Webster back in 1828, Webster never uses the terms eat or drink. They never enter into the definition Instead, Webster says that to partake of means to take a part, portion, or share in common with others, to have a share or part, to participate, usually followed by of. So what partake meant back at that time, it was really a communal act where as a group of people, you would share something with others. So you could partake of a meal, but the, the act of eating or drinking would be incidental to that. You are merely sharing with the group. You could also partake of a dance or partake of good music or partake of good times. So it was, it was that sharing communally. It was, it was not the act of eating. The, it was the fact that they were sharing it with others. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why we find all of the references in the Doctrine and Covenants in the Book of Mormon to partaking of the sacrament. They're always referenced to us as a group. We are to meet together so that we may partake of the body and blood of Christ. We don't do it as an individual act. We do it as a group. Yeah. It is a group act. It's a communal act. And that was the meaning of the word partake, when, especially when it was followed by of, as it is in the scriptures. Yeah. So those are some of the more devotionals. And, and you actually have plenty more in the article that you go into. But let's touch now on a couple of those that maybe answer critics' interpretations or those that have kind of an apologetic value to them. One of them, I believe, uh, and again, I, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going off of memory, but I believe it had something to do with Mary being uh, giving birth in Jerusalem oh, or at Jerusalem. Yes. In fact, it's the word at. Right. Which, you know, you'd think you'd skip over that word because how could <laughs> right. the word at possibly change in definition between Joseph's time and our time? But it has. So give the background of the original scripture. What, what are we referring to? Sure, sure, sure. Um, in uh, 1 Nephi uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, My father Lehi, having dwelt at Jerusalem in all his days. Well, when you look up the word at in today's dictionary, the Oxford American Dictionary, it says the definition is expressing location or, a, or arrival in a particular place or position. Fairly specific. Right. So that um, if you'd say, well, I am at Eborn Books right now, you would understand by that what? That I am physically here. Yes. Inside the store. Inside the store. Absolutely. And yet if you look at Webster's definition, much less specific. In fact, uh, Webster, back in 1828, 
says that in general, at denotes nearness or presence, as at the ninth hour, at the house, but it is less definite than in or on. At the house may be in or near the house. So using Webster's definition of at, if I were to uh, call somebody and say, hey, I'm at Eborn Books, I could actually be a block away walking toward Eborn Books. And that would still be acceptable because I'm near. So in Alma, when Alma says that Jesus would be born of Mary at Jerusalem, that's actually not a bad definition. But critics say, oh, you got it wrong. It was Bethlehem. That's true. That's true. And had he said in Jerusalem, that would have been problematic. But if you, if you go to Google Earth and use the ruler function and just map it out, go from the center of Jerusalem to the center of, of Bethlehem, you're looking at about six miles. That's really close. They are distinct uh, communities, but still, that is really close. So if I'm, if I'm talking to someone on the phone who's in Southern California, and I'm down in Murray, and I say, well, you know, I'm, they say, where are you at? I'm at Salt Lake. Which is very poor grammar. You <laughs> yeah. could say, well, I'm at Salt Lake, <laughs> which would not be inaccurate using Webster's description. So at back in Joseph's time was not as specific. It could mean near or close to. And Bethlehem is definitely near Jerusalem, especially when you're standing on the Americas, as Alma was when he said that, Mary, that Jesus would be born of Mary at Jerusalem. That's actually a very good definition. Now, what uh, anti-Mormons or, or critics of the church, what they do, they actually change the verse and they change it to read in Jerusalem. One of the citations that I put in the article was of someone criticizing the, the wording in the Book of Mormon, and he actually changed at to in, which is not correct. What other ones are there? Let's give one more where it answers uh, a critical interpretation. Oh. And I know you got plenty. What is that, like 10 pages? And no, it's actually more like 20 pages. Oh, my gosh. Can we put that up on the website? Uh, certainly. Excellent. Certainly. Um, well, I don't know if this is apologetic or not, but it's very interesting. Webster, if you go back and look at the word compass... If you were to look at the word compass in any dictionary today, it'd basically just tell you that, that there was a, um, a magnetic compass that uh, points toward north and can orient a traveler so that he or she can figure out where he or she might be going. Mm -hmm. However, Webster defined two different types of compasses, and... Uh, one was a uh, navigator for uh, a, a ship, but very interesting. He says, and I'll just read a couple of phrases. He said, an instrument for directing or ascertaining the course of ships at sea. And then he later says, uh, this other compass is used as an instrument in surveying land and in directing travelers in a desert or forest uh, miners, etc. So he def he defines two different usages of a compass: one for navigators at sea on a ship at sea, sure. and one if you're in a desert or forest. Well, if you look at the 
two times that we're told that the compass was used, the Liahona rather, the compass was used in the Book of Mormon, they describe it as being used in the wilderness in the Sinai Peninsula, if you will, down in Arabia. And the other one was at sea. Yeah, They used it in those two exact ways that Webster says that a compass was utilized. And again, I don't know if that's apologetics, but it fits Webster's definition of compass. When it comes to answering the critics using these alternative definitions, there seems to be a clear, uh, you are reading this wrong. For example, the at instance, that, that there's that there's a wrong language understanding. With some of these more devotional aspects, it seems like you're not coming out as strongly on those things, meaning you're, it's... This is just another way to look at it. Well, I, I don't want to be dogmatic and say that this is the only way to interpret it. What I'm doing through this article is offering a new insight for individuals so that they don't have to sit down with an 1828 Webster's Dictionary. Right. They can instead look through this chart and see which changes have occurred from that point and let them decide for themselves what may be appropriate. In some cases, the modern definition may be totally appropriate, but it also may not be. Um, for example, let me, let me just throw one out there. Um, Nephi and his brothers were told to return to the land of Jerusalem. They were three days out in the wilderness with their family. And so they go back, they get the brass plates, and then the fa their father sends them back again, but this time to get a very different thing. They went back to get wives. <laughs> right. But the, uh, the verbiage in there is actually quite interesting. Um, if we read in uh, 1 Nephi 7.1, we read, and I would that ye might know that after my father Lehi had made an end of prophesying concerning his seed, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto him again, saying that it was not meet for him, Lehi, that he should take his family into the wilderness alone, but that his son should take daughters to wife, that they might raise up seed unto the Lord in the land of promise. Well, that phrase, daughters to wife... Whose daughters? Right. What, what daughters? What does that even mean? If you look at a, any contemporary dictionary, you'll see that a daughter is just a female child of a man and a woman. That's it. Right. And yet, if you look at Webster's Dictionary, you will see some very different definitions. It says, a woman. And when used in the plural... Female inhabitants. Hmm. So, no, no lineage uh, or no descent implied there. It's just daughters were female inhabitants of the land. Well, I think what the Lord wanted to do is to make sure that his sons were taking women to wife that were Israelites and not of some other lineage. And... Better to take women to wife, female inhabitants of 
this land than of a barbarian country, if you will. And who knows where they would end up, right? That's right. So I, I don't think that this is implying that it was the daughters of Ishmael or some other specific daughters. When he says daughters to wife, that was just female inhabitants or women in general. Hmm. Interesting. Well, there's a lot to look at in the article, and a posting or a link to that article will be found in conjunction with this episode at blog.fairmormon.org. And I guess we're going to have access to this 20-plus page spreadsheet that we'll also put a link up to. And uh, so there's tons to study. I'm curious when you will muster up the strength to keep going in the Book of Mormon. Well, my wife and I are leaving on a mission in January, so I don't think it's going to be happening anytime (laughs) soon. Where are you going? Do you know yet? South of Brazil. Oh, okay. Oh, is it same area where you served before? It's, well... The mission has split many times since then, but it's <laughs> okay. part of the area where I served, yes. Okay, very exciting. Does she know Portuguese? Um, we served two missions in Mozambique and Angola where they speak Portuguese, and she learned it there. Wow. You guys are missionary like superstars. Well, we love serving <laughs> missions. I guess so. Wow. Well, thank you very much, Lauren Spendlove, for coming in and talking about your article in The Interpreter called Understanding Nephi with the Help of Noah Webster. And I might want to add that you did have some help from Royal Skousen. Let's let's throw that in Absolutely. as a source as well. So what was his source that you used for this article? Well, I used Royal Skousen's earliest text of the Book of Mormon. And one of the reasons I did that, after reading through his book, I was really impressed with the work that, uh, that Skousen did. Um, his whole attempt was to go back and and recover the original words as much as possible that, that Joseph would have dictated to his scribe. Um, one of those, do we have time for me to yeah. just cite one of those? Go for it. Great. Um, one of those uh, changes that Skousen brings out, and it actually has a fairly significant um, definitional change in the Book of Mormon. Let let me just throw something out. None of these definitions that I have here that have changed over time change any of the doctrines of the gospel. They just give us deeper insight into what some of the gospel truths may have meant to the earliest readers of the Book of Mormon. So, in, for example, in, in chapter 8 of 1 Nephi, verse 1, we read, And it came to pass that we had gathered together all manner of seeds of every kind, both of grain of every kind and also the seeds of fruits of every kind. Well, in our current LDS Book of Mormon, it does not say fruits. It says fruit, singular. Okay. The church has singularized that. However, the correct word is plural, fruits. And I think the church changed it because we never say fruits. We always (laughs) say fruit. Okay. Uh, We don't say um, um, bananas are great fruits. We say they're great fruit. Um, However, the terms fruit and fruits are very different. Okay. I'm listening. If you go back to (laughs) Webster's definition, we see that He says, in a general sense, whatever the earth produces for the nourishment of animals or for clothing or profit. 
And then he says, among the fruits of the earth are included not only corn of all kinds, but grass, cotton, flax, grapes, and all cultivated plants. In this comprehensive sense, the word is generally used in the plural. So when Nephi said that they gathered together the seeds of fruits of all kind, he could have been including grass and flax, anything that grows, not just bananas, apples, and peaches, and plums. What we call fruit. What we call fruit today. So by removing the S from the word, we have narrowed the definition of the seeds that Lehi and his family took with them. They could have been... Well, basically, any type of cultivated plant would be, any seed of a cultivated plant would be considered a fruit. There you go. I'm excited to see the rest of the book. So I hope that at some point in your break from being super missionary, you get a chance to continue on with the work because it's very interesting and it's given me a lot to, to restudy as I've gone through uh, the Book of Mormon. So I would take it that the that the final word on this would be that these definitions that we find in First Nephi can be replicated. I I would believe absolutely so. Okay. Um, the entire book was translated at the same time or right around the same time. So I would assume that whatever definitions applied it for First Nephi would also apply to any other te- any other book or chapter in the Book of Mormon. Okay. Well, thank you again, and uh, hopefully you guys will all go out and take a chance to look uh, look at this article. Again, it's Understanding Nephi with the help of Noah Webster, found on mormoninterpreter.com. Thank you again for coming in. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.